Hello, this is Katrin Kumpano and this is a Risky Business News sponsor interview with two returning guests, Airlock Digital co-founders, Daniel Schell and David Cunningham. Welcome back, Daniel David. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, Daniel. Microsoft released the Microsoft Digital Defense Report last week. Working as a journalist, I've always received pitches about various reports and the thing they pitched was never the thing I covered. So I was wondering what were the things that you took away from the report, because I'm pretty sure we're going to have three different main takeaways from that. Yeah. So first it was absolutely huge. It was like over a hundred pages of data. And, you know, it did provide maybe a good snapshot of the landscape as how Microsoft perceive it from their telemetry and their, you know, these reports also have a marketing component as well about, you know, alignment to sort of their solutions and strategies. Um, some of the interesting stats, I guess, or saying that was interesting was they were suggesting that, you know, for the ransomware groups that they've been tracking, that the um, the hands-on or human-operated ransomware they've called is up sort of 200%, which suggests, I guess, that maybe there's less low-hanging fruit or maybe there's more, um, you know, more manual, you know, you need to break in to get established presence. You need to, like, disable the backups or salt the earth before you run the things. And, you know, obviously every environment is different, so it sort of makes sense that this can't just be sort of like some auto-scripted thing that just works effectively. So that was kind of interesting to me. Another thing that was interesting is they suggested that one out of five incidents, um, intrusions, involve remote management tools, um, which would be around the things of RMM platforms, such as like, you know, the SolarWinds or Kaseo saying where you've got like an MSP or someone who's got an agent deployed and man- is managing your network, that that seems to be compromised. And then that's how people come into your network, which is also, yeah, it was an interesting point there as well. And saying that... Um, yeah, it took a little while to work out. Um, you mentioned yourself was the idea of remote encryption was mentioned in the report and from a, a ransomware perspective. And I guess I would sort of call that maybe or what it made me think about was the idea of like living off the land encryption or something along those lines. I think in this case, it might refer to virtual machines, like you're creating virtual machines and then encrypting other disks with a, a new virtual machine, which would be something that would, might be difficult to detect because it's, you know, if you make your own virtual machine and use that to encrypt other ones, you won't have all the agents and detection capability on there. But it also made me think about things such as BitLocker and such, like why not just use the encryption, uh, you know, capabilities of the platforms themselves rather than write some executable code that can encrypt something. Why not just re- revoke the keys or replace the keys of BitLocker and then that's the way of you doing your encryption. So that was sort of made me think about those things, which was quite interesting and be interesting to see that, you know, they're reporting on that as well. I think that was reported why I read with the MGM breaches and such. It was like, yeah, they used the virtual machines to encrypt disks, ESXi hosts. David? Yeah, so I think overall, from my perspective, it was a really well-rounded uh, look at the entire ecosystem and the challenges that, that we're facing. I think a lot of the advice that's actually in the report is that, uh, you know, organizations, you know, need to increasingly take a sort of zero trust approach to prevent some of the advanced techniques that are being used to not only, you know, infiltrate uh, organizations, but, um, you know, deploy ransomware and things like that. Uh, I think, you know, the, the obvious, um, you know, threat at the moment is really just around identity, right? You know, attackers will steal identity, get identity and use the uh, the own uh, organization's tools against them, as Daniel mentioned, with things like living off the land BitLocker, <laughs> uh, you know, to, in, in order to cause pain for, for organizations. And, and I think that that's going to continue. And the way going forward, uh, you know, is really with that zero trust and least privilege access approach. It's, it's only becoming more increasingly relevant as time goes on, uh, where we can't just 
just taken on deny by default approaches, um, you know, going forward. So, um, you know, I think that that's a trend uh, in, in in the industry and the way it's going. And I'm seeing, you know, a lot of industry partners, uh, you know, well, uh, organizations using zero trust as the uh, term that, that's being used. Obviously, it originally started as an identity term and it's increasingly uh, changed to cover a whole broad range of of, of, of things, but, you know, and increasingly moving towards least privilege, right? And that's across network files, identity, uh, and, um, and just uh, access um, yeah, in general. Uh, so, you know, I think cybersecurity and, and the general pain that organizations are feeling is so well covered uh, now, and you, we're hearing about it every single day. And I think it was really just a good summary and roundup of, of all of those things and, and the shift towards you know, more proactive prevention. Do you think that because they made read all that huge report, it's why they retired VBScript and retiring <laughs> NTLM this week? Uh, yeah, I think that those uh, reduce the attack surface, right, and take away capabilities. You know, the the uh, while attackers still do bring their own tools, I mean, the best capability are the ones that's already there. You know, you get less detection. Uh, there's there's a rich capability, and I think that removing NTLM and VBScript is is a good move long term. Um, it's definitely saying I think that organizations will find very you know at, at, you know since our game is allowed this thing, we have lots of visibility into the VB scripting that runs within customer organizations, and it's everywhere. There's so many applications that call VBS or transparently in the background, all the monitoring and availability tools are always popping VBS scripts. Half of your customers' login scripts for your net logon scripts are going to be, be full of VBS scripts and such. So we think we've got, I think you'll find there'll be a very long tail on this where you know it might become a, I think this sort of saying it's gonna be a feature on demand, kind of like installing like the older versions of the .NET framework today like you know it pulls it from the internet or you know a cache location and installs that feature and i would argue to some degree as well that if it or, or maybe you know i'm not sure what the capability control this is natively but if the what might stop an attacker installing the feature <laughs> if, if that's there <laughs> you know it's got to be microsoft signed code coming in so you go oh i don't have vb script but i want to use it okay well go install vb script is that going to create like a detection or some sort of capability yeah, I think this is sort of breaking news in the last day, so I haven't self seen if they've put any additional controls around this. But I guess it's yeah, you know, it's it's always a good idea not having built-in capabilities. I think Microsoft really went down that path with like Windows 7 and 8 where they sort of took out all these things. And over the last year or two, everything has been sneaking back in again. You know, you've now got curl.exe is just inside Windows now. You've got ssh.exe, sftp. So all these tools that you know you can use to bounce between network stuff are now just sort of default features. When really, if you went back to the Microsoft security days when they were really focused on this, they would have said, well, no, let's not give them this attack capability. Like, does everyone need SSH or SCP built into standard Windows by default? Probably not. Um, but yeah, they've sort of lessons of the past, I think, have been forgotten. And, you know, stuff is being wrapped back in. So it's interesting to see them now go, oh, we'll pull out VBS. But, you know, next week they'll add Python. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when I was researching that topic for the newsletter, the main thing that came to mind was they're obviously trying to nudge everyone towards using PowerShell. And that got me Googling around. And I found Alan Liska's uh, newsletter where he was covering the topic of securing PowerShell and he was basically calling it a lost cause because he was invoking 
a lot of basic requirements like identity and access management, application control, asset management, vulnerability management, just to handle PowerShell. So if everyone's going to move away from BBScript to PowerShell, isn't that creating a whole set of problems? Or is even if people say securing PowerShell is harder, is this actually a benefit? There's a lot to unpack there in that. I think, look, of course, reducing the amount of options is, is better. You know, removing VBScript and then you're just worrying about PowerShell, uh, I think doesn't change the fact that you've still got the same problems with PowerShell today regardless. Even if more people are using PowerShell, I think that it's at least a concentrated effort uh, towards that ecosystem. I think for me, the, the challenge with PowerShell is that, um, you know, a lot of the PowerShell development and new features are coming in add-on versions of PowerShell that doesn't ship with Windows. You know, you, you've really stopped at sort of version five of PowerShell being in built into Windows 10 and, and Windows 11. And, uh, you know, you, I think it's up to version eight um, on the actual PowerShell development GitHub, uh, where you can actually download the latest versions, which have, you know, much uh, more, you know, rich, richer features. And, and I, I see the reason why that's been decoupled so they can develop faster and, and put new things in. But, uh, you know, I feel as though we've sort of been stuck at this spot at PowerShell version 5.1 uh, in Windows for a while now. And it's really hard to actually secure. You know, you need you've got logging. Uh, you know, you've got two types of logging in PowerShell: module and script block logging that you need to turn on to get visibility. Then you need a seam to actually see that centrally. You need to worry about version downgrades because each version of Windows still ships with older versions of PowerShell, most notably PowerShell version two for backwards compatibility. Uh, you know, you need to prevent untrusted PowerShell from executing. Uh, you know, you can use things like constrained language mode uh, to reduce the attack surface, but really difficult to turn on because you need to use things like AppLocker, um, you know, and, and other uh, tools and actually to enable and enforce that. Um, and you can't just turn it off. It's foundational. You know, Daniel mentioned that BB scripts are used for sort of some logon type events in some, some environments. Um, you know, definitely PowerShell uh, is used for, you know, influencing logon behavior for users. Um, you know, uh, and I think the only way that uh, we, you know, sort of look at the PowerShell challenge here at Airlock is like, we look at file reads of, you know, PowerShell scripts and, and we control access to that because it's, you know, trying to control it, the code that's getting into the interpreter at its foundation, uh, because it's one of, I think, the, the more simple methods rather than, you know, attacking it from logging versions, managing almost the PowerShell ecosystem uh, and understanding what you have across thousands of assets can be really hard. Uh, so yeah, great, uh, great blog post there, uh, which summarizes a lot of the different challenges. It's not straightforward from an application whitelist approach. Just because they're both scripting languages, Windows scripting languages, do you treat them the same or do you look for different things in detecting a malicious behavior when talking about VBScript and PowerShell? Essentially, when you're talking about, um, you know, allow listing, uh, you're still doing the same foundational thing, which is if there's code that's loading into the interpreter or into Windows or into memory, uh, you're just detecting whether that code is different to something you've seen before. And if it's if it's different and you don't trust it, then you block it. Uh, you know, PowerShell fortunately supports, you know, file signatures uh, and file signing. So, you know, you can trust Microsoft originated PowerShell. And if it's modified, it will break. It's really nice that PowerShell scripts do support that authentic code signature um, but um, you know we 
uh, really there's no APIs for PowerShell either. You know, you, Microsoft did make a AMSI available in older versions of Windows, which is the anti-malware scan interface, which does sort of tell PowerShell to uh, send a third-party security tool uh, some decoded information about the script that's running so it can make a, a determination whether it's good or bad. That's really about all you can do, uh, to be honest, unless you're looking at like injecting into the PowerShell process itself and doing advanced memory sort of uh, forensics um, or catching it based on launch conditions such as command line, which can be really limited and, and, and quite difficult. Um, so we just look at whether the, the you know, the really the code's different, whether you trust it. But uh, Daniel, I'll pass it over to you. I, I think one of the one of the, one of the core differences is really that VB script or you know C script as as interpreters they're they're not like interactive interpreters so controlling that fast is pretty easy and VB scripts and such can be signed as well just for David for, for David so he knows there um, <laughs> or a reminder that you can't forget but the um, the idea being is that you know that allows us to control the script, right? The script has to be trusted, it has to be signed, it has to be that before it's allowed to run. PowerShell is more tricky because you have this interactive interpreter. So if someone's got hands on the keyboard um, or they can pass command line parameters, really at the end of the day, then they can put anything in there and it doesn't have to be from a file. Now we can identify PowerShell as accessing a file of disk, like is it signed, is it trusted? We can allow that to run, great. But it gets more tricky when yeah, your people are putting content into the interpreter. That's where it gets more tricky. And really, like David said, like there's AMSI. Um, but the real limitations of AMSI is that AMSI will only like you know not capture all the content all the time. <laughs> so it's only when there's suspicious functions and things like that. And then there's you know, and what what the control for that really is as well is also um, at the end of the day is constrained language mode, which really blocks you know stops PowerShell from loading bad functions like just running and compiling dynamically C-sharp code and loading add-ins and in you know, reflection into memory and stuff like that. That's all controlled by constrained language mode. But to do constrained language mode, you need to do application control. And doing application control with some of the technologies is really difficult. And, you know, that's kind of like why, why we exist. I'll put that plug in. But, um, you know, you, that, that's a real challenge. So, you know, it's, it's not that easy for some organizations to say, oh, you want to secure PowerShell? Just turn on constrained language mode. It, it's not that easy. You need to do application control, right? Yeah. So, if, if there's one or two things I would suggest that people prioritize with PowerShell, it would be getting rid of PowerShell version 2 to prevent downgrades. That's a classic because it just turns off you know, every modern protection of PowerShell uh, and, uh, you know, enable your logging and try and get that centrally, um, you know. So, uh, you know, they're, they're two things where I would definitely start if you are looking at getting some sort of control over, over PowerShell in your environment. David, Daniel, both of you, thank you very much. Thank you, Catalan. No worries. Cheers. Cheers.